Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow, and this is the Goop Podcast, where we bring together thought leaders, scientists, healers, creatives, and seekers. I'm so grateful to be able to interview these bright minds and share their incredible wisdom with you. And I especially love listening to the conversations that are led by my brilliant co-host and friend, Erica Chitty. Erica is the CEO and co-founder of Loom, and she's been a part of the Goop family since the beginning days. We believe that simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. I'll let Erica fill you in on her guest today. My guest today is Patrice Colors. Patrice is an artist, educator, author, and the former executive director of Black Lives Matter Global Network, the movement she co-founded in 2013. Patrice's new book is called An Abolitionist Handbook, 12 Steps to Change Yourself and the World. In it, she outlines a compassionate approach for how to push for reform while also taking care of yourself and of each other in the process. Today, we talk about what it means to be an abolitionist and why it's a critical framework for creating communities of care. Patrice explains why we need to rethink cancel culture, how to have courageous conversations, and she shares steps we can take to begin imagining a new world. It was a pleasure speaking with Patrice, and I'm excited to share the conversation with all of you. I'm really excited to be talking to you today, and I'm really excited to talk about abolitionism just writ large, because I think it's one of these concepts that people find really frightening or surreal or bordering on incomprehensible. That's right. Those are all correct words. Yes. <laughs> it feels it feels like a fiction, yes. which in, in many ways, most Afrofuturistic thoughts do feel like a fiction, but they come from a place of of true community and connection and, and kind of collective value, seeing our collective value. And so I would love for you to just break down basic entryway. What yes. what is abolitionism? So I'm going to first, 
I'm going to define it. And this is the part that scares people. And then I'm going to go further. Abolition is simply the getting rid of prisons, jails, surveillance, detention, court systems, and any apparatus that's about controlling human beings. Okay, so that's like the simple term, but abolition is so much more. Abolition is how we treat each other. It's how we show up for each other on a day-to-day basis. It's how our institutions are structured. Right now we live in an economy of punishment. Our institutions are structured around punishment. If you're poor, you're punished. If you're black, you're punished. If you're a woman, you're punished. And so abolition is really calling for an economy of care. How do we build our institutions that really care for the human beings that are using those services Um, and care being a central component of abolition? And that to me is the component that's often not seen, talked about, um, not lifted up in the media. And so abolition is about how we care, how we show up and how we love. And when you talk about care, what does that actually look like? What is abolition and care manifest to? Absolutely. Well, I think a lot about the system we live in now, which is what we all are in, at least inside of the U.S. I know there's probably listeners outside of the U.S., but in my context, we have no healthcare system. Sure, we have big business as healthcare, but you're unable to get your healthcare needs met if you don't have money to get them met, or you're unable to get the most effective adequate treatment if you don't have money. I think about our mental health care system that literally is completely privatized. My brother who has severe mental illness, who I am the caregiver for, you know, for the last 20 years, I've been supporting him on the front lines of getting the care that he deserves. And at one point I thought, okay, finally, I found a place, I found this amazing place for him to go to and to get the services he needed. They don't take insurance. And not only do they not take insurance, it costs $30,000 a month to house somebody there. And so who can afford that literally? Who can afford $30,000 a month? And I thought to myself, unless we live in an abolitionist world, my brother will never be able to get the care he deserves in this kind of system. And my brother's just one of many of of thousands of people with severe mental illness who are suffering, um, whether they are houseless, their family has abandoned them, no judgment. It's very difficult to care for someone with severe mental illness if you don't have professionals. And so I think that, you know, the care aspect is truly investing in people's health and wellness because we simply deserve it. Not because of how much money we make, not because of being a celebrity or what gift we have, but simply because we are alive and breathing. And so we need sustenance and protection and care. And that's what abolition requires of us. And that's what it's calling of our institutions. There's been a you know huge debate. We just lost, right? Voting rights and the cutting down of voting rights in this current system that we live in. I just read a Teen Vogue article about bosses telling they're not to test because they don't want them. They don't want to know if they have COVID because they want them to work anyway. So many parts of our system is failing. And so as the system continues to fail, many of us will still try to work to get it to work. 
but we also should be building and visioning a new world. How is abolition different from reform? So in my in my book, and I think it's chapter five, don't quote me, uh, <laughs> I have a whole chapter on non-reformist reforms. And so we do need reform to get us to abolition. We can't close jails, stop police departments overnight. We need real sustenance reforms to get us closer to abolition. But those reforms cannot be reforms like give all the cops body cameras because those reforms actually reify the state. Those reforms pour money back into the police, pour money back into a system that has failed. So the reforms we're calling for are reforms like stopping cash money bail, you know, the bail system, and really looking at that. People have been working on that nationally and locally, or stopping jail construction. Here in my hometown, we stopped two $3.5 billion jails, and now we're about to shut down one of those jails. There are so many ways that we can activate abolition in real time through non-reformist reforms. And a non-reformist reform is basically a reform that chips away at the system and gets us closer to freedom. A regular reform is a reform that will pour money back into that system because a regular reform believes that the system is just broken or it needs a little fixing. The non-reformist reform is saying, no, this system doesn't work. So let's, let's build a new yellow brick road towards the system that does work. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. Toomey has a soft side. Discover their new Acer bag collection in its pillowy pleats, satin finish, and crescent shape. Acer is the bag to carry for your nine to five and the five to nine plans that follow. Versatility, after all, is Toomey's signature. Shop the full Acer collection on Toomey.com or at a Toomey store near you. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. What's been your biggest struggle within doing this work? You know, the first struggle is to get people to even listen past the word abolition, to believe that abolition is a framework that can produce quality policies that will help and support our societies and community. And so that has always been the first, you know, I started practicing abolition 20 years ago now, when I was 18 years old. And 20 years ago, it was a small group of people that were talking about abolition. It was not on a Goop podcast. It was not in mainstream media. And so part of the conversation, you know, a mentor of mine says, we have to win the battle of ideas. Part of it is just trying to convince people that it's a worthy conversation. But now we're in a different context. A lot has changed, a lot has happened. And so I think people are more curious. Okay, well, tell us more about what you mean about abolition. And I think this is the part that I'm most excited about with this book is like, you have some concrete words. Um, Each of the chapters end with a set of questions for the readers to really negotiate. And then, you know, I highlight 12 artists, activists, educators of the book, some alive, some past, that we can learn from. And I think that's always important. Abolition is not a solo sport. We do this as a team and as a community. And so being inside community and this abolitionist practice 
is really important. And then the last thing I'll say is abolition isn't foolproof. It doesn't mean that things are going to, you know, be magical and, you know, it's not this romantic theory. And so we're going to fail. We're going to, it's going to be hard. It's not going to be easy. And in that failing, instead of, you know, throwing the baby out with the bathwater in that failing, we should say, Hey, how did we fail? What can we learn from? And how do we be better next time? And abolition does require us to look at our failures as advancements versus looking at our failures as something that we have to now throw away or lock away and never look at and see and practice again. What would accountability and justice look like outside of the current system that we have? Yeah, it's it looks like a lot of things. So, you know, so much of what we have right now is very cookie cutter, right? So it's like, we have one kind of system. There's police, you call them, there's courts, you end up getting convicted in them or released in them. There's a jury, probation. So we would have to overhaul that system. And then the question becomes, well, how then do we hold people accountable? A lot of that comes from the communities that people live in. Someone said this to me the other day, I'm not remembering their name, but why would you call a stranger if there's something happening in someone's home that's scary or harmful, wouldn't you want to call the community to help intervene? Wouldn't you want to train the community to build up the skills to help intervene? So many different people don't even trust calling the police, so they don't get any kind of help. And so this concept of accountability really does lie with our communities, really does lie with who we are to each other. One of the chapters in my book is called Build Community, Build Intentional Community. And, you know, really amazing abolitionist that I've been friends with and have followed for years. Her name's Mia Mingus. And Mia talks about accountability all the time, but she has this very elaborate system called pods where, you know, each person should have their own set of people that support them. And that could be for joyous events and, you know, celebratory events, but also it could be in moments of harm. Have you ever, this is to our audience, have you ever had a moment where you're like, I'm scared, I don't know who to call. That's where the pods come in to start training ourselves. We're we're trained to isolate when we're scared, to not ask for help, to do it on our own. Abolition asks us to build community, to find that community so that we can start building stronger teams. And so accountability does, and justice does look like calling on the community to help figure out how we are in relationship to each other and figure out what's, what is the best form of justice? Oftentimes survivor led, asking survivors, what would they need? What would they want? So many times, and as a survivor myself, I've just wanted an apology and to know that the harm was not going to happen to anybody else again. How do you ensure that? How do you make that happen? It also means that the person who's caused harm needs a pod needs people to hold them accountable. Without those structures, we often leave people shamed, embarrassed, and punished. You know, that makes me want to ask you about cancel culture and moving away from that, because I think the idea of creating community around those who have been seen to have perpetrated harm or been an arbiter of pain. Mm Mm-hmm. 
there is this idea of isolation and seclusion and banishment. All of those words mean the same thing. (laughs) That that is what is now required in order to potentially allow them to have a re-entry into, you know, society writ large. That's not something that I agree with. And again, hearing your unpacking of just abolition in its entirety, it's also not what that framework subscribes to. And so what are your thoughts about cancel culture and, and the need to move away from that? So I have a lot of thoughts. The first thought I'll say is I actually do not call it cancel culture. I call it carceral culture because cancel culture, one, has been intentionally co-opted. And actually this culture of punishment and revenge comes from the carceral culture that we live in, the framework of someone causes harm. So yeah, they get, they get punished. They get the worst kind of punishment banishment they get excommunicated they they can't talk to their family and their friends and there's nothing healing about that there's nothing generative about that it also makes the person who's caused harm to be more defensive to dig in more doesn't actually lead that person towards a path of self-healing self-recovery nor accountability so for for me we actually have to unpack carceral culture We have to unpack the ways that we've all invested in the prison system, the police system, the court system, probation system, these systems that may live outside of us, but we truly are living them on our daily lives, right? How many times do folks, you know, feel upset or hurt by a friend and instead of confronting them or having a courageous conversation, they block them out or they start to make stories about how that person is a bad person anyway. And, you know, and, and they, I don't, I don't have to talk to, I don't need anybody in my life. Like these are the kinds of ways that we've been taught on how to deal with harm, how to deal with issues. And I really argue that, you know, the way we build our muscle up around this isn't like taking the biggest issue in our life, you know, not asking people to confront the person that abuse them necessarily. That's not that's not the big ask because that's that's huge and that's a lot of vulnerability. I'm actually asking folks to start with the small things. Someone at work said something you did not like, or someone at home, you know, said something about you that made you feel uncomfortable. And instead of eating it and not sharing it, you hold and you fester and you fester. I'm actually asking us to practice something different. Say, hey, that that kind of hurt my feelings and you know, I would like to talk about it. Oftentimes someone will say, wow, I didn't realize that. Like that was not my intention. Can we talk about it? Sometimes people can get defensive and we learn, you know, and we grow, but we have to set new examples. I am incredibly worried about the state of the world, not just the world at large. I'm I'm worried about our relationships. I'm worried about how fatigued and tired people are, how sick we are from two years of this pandemic. Some of us as Black people, Black women from our lives under a racial pandemic, right? This takes a toll. And oftentimes the people who end up being impacted are the people closest to us. We end up lashing out. We end up, you know, really because we're hurting, hurting others. And so 
I really want this book to also be an intervention. Like, how do we have new practices in this time? Because we have been taught to go at each other's necks, uh, to not believe each other, to not show up for each other, to go against each other. There's been a lot of divisiveness in this time. It's just reading someone say that like before Trump, their family was like such a happy family after Trump and all the disinformation and misinformation, their family is so divided and just there's so much interpersonal violence happening. So I'm hoping that this book is also a book that helps us intervene on how we can be better to each other. Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. If you're not a full-time community organizer, how do you help advance the abolitionist movement? What is something everybody could do today, right now? Be an abolitionist in your home and your family. You know, I grew up in a family that was old school. We got spankings growing up, you know? I made a commitment. I will not spank my kid. This was before I was an abolitionist. I was just like, that's not right. That don't feel good. There's like nothing empowering about this experience. So, and there's a whole generation of us that grew up that way, you know? And as I got older and confronted my mom in particular, she apologized. You know, she would feel very embarrassed by that. She's like, I didn't know. I didn't know how to parent differently. I was a young parent. You know, I was overworked. I was so tired. I was impatient. And that was so healing, like all the years, you know, and she understood like that wasn't her best form. And then I got to change the cycle being a parent and not, you know, using, you know, using spanking as the way to deal with my child, but having you know, constructive conversations and teaching him how to use his words and and him being able to say to me when I've caused harm, you know, that hurt my feelings, mommy, I'm frustrated, you know, being able to use those words and being able to feel that. And so there's abolitionist parenting. There's how we show up as some of us are educators or we're doctors and like think about how you're enacting care and your everyday life. Think about what you're communicating to your loved ones. Um, we're communi- communicating to, the, to your friends and your family members. Abolition is an everyday practice. I think this idea of an everyday practice is sustainable. It's like, it, it has an invitation to it that makes me feel like it's less of a fiction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's when I started to realize there was a website, um, maybe when I was like in my early 20s, that was called Everyday Abolition. And I and I submitted something for it and it got published on there. And it, that was when I started to reimagine what abolition could look like beyond just getting rid of systems and structures, but like how I practice every day. 
Another thing that this brings up for me just thinking about the everyday is what we're taking in in the media. And I'm I'm curious to hear your take on police propaganda and PR. How do we how do we screen for what is real, what is not? And and having having just that beginner's capability of just being able to filter such a good question. It's something that I've been thinking about a lot, especially in light of, of the attacks on, on me last year by the right-wing media. But I think the first thing people need to recognize is that all, all media isn't the same. All media isn't created equal. All media doesn't have the same goals. And so really knowing, like, who are your media outlets? I know for me, a decade ago, I didn't, I didn't realize that, like, you know, Breitbart, was right wing. I had to learn that. Someone had to say, hey, this is like an outlet that targets and goes after, you know, people who are trying to make social change. And so I think this piece is like really asking people to pause when they read things, go and look for sources. You have to be more disciplined. Not everything is what it seems. I've always had like a healthy skepticism of media. After last year, I really was like, Oh no, let me just like take my time and really look and see what's real, what isn't real, like, or what what is being twisted and why. And as I learn, you know, as I go down that rabbit hole, like, okay, this person is connected to this person. Okay, this is why this is, you know, this conversation is happening in this way. I can make more informed decisions. And also, it's really important to be asking questions of other people, like, hey, did you read this? What do you think? Like, what's your what are your thoughts on this? Being engaged in that way also helps us break down what is misinformation and what's disinformation. I think that that piece about asking other people what they're reading and having that conversation with others just really smoothly builds into just this wider framework that you're talking about around how we need one another, right? When we're isolated and we're in our own kind of individual tunnel and not looking beyond, it's very easy to come up with a very specific lens to look at the world. But just abolition in general is about reaching across, communicating, and, 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 and working together. And so I just, again, I feel like all the conversations I've been having lately there's been this conciseness that I think is so important right now. I think it's such a a trauma-informed way as well of gathering information, not necessarily wanting to flood, just giving people just enough to start that inquiry within themselves. And I'm just really, really, really happy that we were able to make time today to just touch in on something that is lifelong work mm. and is also lifelong, not just lifelong work, because I think also the word work, I think, has connotations that can be really challenging, but it's a, it's a lifelong journey of which okay. you will rest en route, bring other people along. Yes. I call it an abolitionist journey. It is a journey. There's not one destination to this. And, you know, we've been in this mess for, what, 500 years? It's going to take a little bit of time to get out of it. <laughs> Exactly. Thanks for tuning into my conversation with Patrice Colors. I hope you'll pick up a copy of her book, An Abolitionist Handbook. 
Thanks again for tuning in. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. I hope you'll listen, follow, rate, and review all of our episodes, which are available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to the Goop Podcast.